Acts chapter 1. Last week, we looked at the ordinance of baptism as it was given by Christ to the church and what it means, what it represents as a testimony of our faith in Christ, as a testimony of our dying to ourselves to receive the life that we have in Christ. And it's a a physical change or a physical representation of a spiritual change that's taken place in us. And it should be important to all believers as a public, public testimony of that fact that we identify ourselves with the church of Christ as part of his body. So we looked at that. What we didn't elaborate on and we didn't have time, went quite long anyway, was there are several other mentions or, or uh, references to baptism in the scripture which do not talk about physical baptism in water that we looked at last week. There are three specifically, but the baptism into Christ, that's a phrase that you see in the New Testament. Baptism by the Spirit, that's also in the New Testament. And then the baptism by fire, which John the Baptist mentioned in the passage that we read last week in Matthew chapter 3. So today we're going to look at those three references and kind of give us, hopefully, as we study the scripture together, a better picture of baptism as a whole because these all relate to the physical baptism that we talked about last week. And in order to give us a good background for our study, we read in our responsive reading the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 how the Holy Spirit was given to the believers who were gathered together there in Jerusalem and the effect that it had on them. But we need to go back just a step further in order to get the full picture, and we're going to start by looking at what the Bible means when it talks about baptism in the Spirit. Okay, So I want you to go back to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and the Bible tells us this. This is Luke writing, and he is the author of the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded to them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, Not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at this passage and what the Bible teaches us about the baptism in the Spirit. 
Father, we just come before you now, and we have your word in front of us, and we want to be taught. We know and acknowledge that your word is absolute truth, that you've given it to us as your revelation of the things that you want us to know and understand. And so as we study this passage about the baptism in the Spirit, I pray that you would just guide us. Lord, this can be a complicated topic. It's, a, it's a hard to understand in many aspects. But I pray that through your word and through your spirit, you might make it clear to us what you want us to understand about it, how it applies in our lives, and that we might be emboldened to take the gospel, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us because of it. So, Lord, just work in us now, I pray, through your spirit and teach us. Lord, use me as your instrument and as your mouthpiece. I pray that you would strengthen me with mind and body. Give me your spirit and fill me with your spirit so that I might speak boldly your truth, that we might understand and be challenged by your word today. And through all of this, we pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted up, that we would see Jesus Christ and see you as you are. And just praise you and glorify you. And we thank you in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. As we read in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 is kind of the end of the Gospels, if you will. This account that we read here in the first part of Acts chapter 1 is the last words of Jesus to his disciples. Now, if you go back into the Gospels, every single one of the Gospels mentions this event, but it records it in a different way, and it records different things that Jesus said. At the end of Matthew uh, chapter 28, we have the Great Commission, when Jesus is standing before his disciples, and he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, uh, baptizing them and teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. Then he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. John records it a little bit differently with some different words. In fact, John finishes by saying, and Jesus did many other things that if they were recorded, they would fill up the whole world and the whole world would not be able to contain all of it. Okay, uh, Luke, even Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, records in the, in the gospel of Luke a little bit different account. But all of them talk about this last day that Jesus was with his disciples and the commandments that he gave to them as he was about to leave. And as we read here, where we're probably familiar most with verse 8, when he says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now that is a form of the Great Commission. Jesus was telling them, This is what your purpose is from this day forward, and I'm leaving you here on this earth to accomplish this purpose. But he says, you're not alone in this. First of all, he's going to give them power from the Holy Ghost, and he will be with them. We're going to look at both of those statements in just a minute within this context of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's what he's talking about when he says, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. It's the effect of the Holy Spirit being given to them and what it causes in their life. Now, at this point, they had not received the Holy Spirit yet, okay? In fact, it says in, um, uh, let's see, in verse, we'll go back to the beginning. Verse 2, it says, until the day which he was taken up, talking about Jesus, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So he's giving them these commandments. One of the commandments he gives them is to wait. 
He gives them this great commission to go and preach the gospel, but he says, wait, don't do it yet. And this is recorded in some of the gospels as well as here in Acts. And he tells them, wait in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit. And so that's what happens in Acts chapter 2 that we read today in our responsive reading. In Matthew chapter 3, we saw this uh, last week when we were talking about the baptism of John and what John had said about Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So we're looking at that specific phrase that John said and that Jesus talked about, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And what we have in these two passages, Acts chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3, is the promise of the Holy Spirit to be given by Jesus Christ to his followers. Okay, Now, Jesus told his disciples several times during his ministry on earth that he would send the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit would be a comforter to them. Okay, you can read that in, some, in the Gospels, in John chapter 14. Um, but the very last thing he says to them after giving them the Great Commission is, wait for the Holy Spirit. All right? And so in Acts chapter 2, we have the fulfillment of that promise of the Holy Spirit that is to come unto them. And so as we get to Acts chapter 2, we have a wealth of information in the beginning of this passage, or the beginning of this chapter, that tells us about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we've kind of given you the introduction in Acts chapter 1. Here's the promise. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Here is the challenge or the command. You need to go through the power of the Spirit and preach the gospel to all nations. And when you get to Acts chapter 2, that is the fulfillment of what we will call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That Jesus sends. Now, I want to look at the first four verses, and we're going to spend most of our time there today to look at what this means as far as the baptism of the Spirit. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, we read this in our responsive reading, but I want to read it again. He starts in the first verse, and he says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I want to break this passage down for us to help, or to help us understand what this baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Okay? So first of all, look at the first phrase in verse 1. He says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. In order to understand this event, we have to understand some background. And I know you get excited when I say, let's do some history, okay? Some of you like history, some of you don't. But i got to give you the history to help you understand what the Bible's telling us here when it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come. This day of Pentecost was not all of a sudden created and named Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on this day. There's a reason it's called Pentecost, okay? Pentecost is the fulfillment of a picture that God created way back in the Old Testament in Leviticus 23 when he gives Israel the law and commands them to observe certain feasts in, in keeping the law. Okay, 
So in Leviticus 23, you don't have to go there, but I, I ask you sometime, go and read it, because you'll understand a lot after hearing this about the law, about the feasts of old, the Old Testament that God gave to Israel. So in Leviticus 23, first of all, you have the Passover feast. Now, all of us probably are familiar with that somewhat. The Passover was the commemoration of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. It was God delivering them from bondage. And so in celebrating Passover, what they were to do was to kill the lamb and then cook it, eat the lamb with their, with their traveling clothes on, and they would have this meal. And we looked at a couple weeks ago in the celebration of this Passover feast how Christ instituted the Last Supper. That's actually what was happening. They were celebrating the Passover. But it looked back on that event when God told captive Israel in Egypt that he was going to deliver them. And the night that the death angel was going to come and go through the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn son, Israel was to protect themselves by taking the blood of this lamb and putting it on the doorposts and the lintel above the door. And anyone who was inside that house with the blood on the door would be safe. And it was a picture of Jesus' salvation. We understand that. Okay? It was a picture of that. So this is the first feast that God commands Israel to observe every year. And it, and it, it was actually given on the first day of Nisan, the first day of the, mo- of the month. Okay? So that's the first feast in Leviticus 23. The second feast begins the day after the Passover. This is called the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, it was part of the Passover celebration. They would celebrate Passover for an entire week. The Passover feast was the beginning of that, and then they would celebrate this Feast of Unleavened Bread as part of the Passover through the next week. And during that week, the people would eat no, uh, no leavened bread. Everything they ate was unleavened bread, no yeast in it. Now, God had a picture in that, of course. Everything he gave had a picture. Yeast represented sin. And so this unleavened bread represented a life without sin. So this Passover, or I'm sorry, this Feast of Unleavened Bread started right after Passover, the day after, and then went for an entire week. The first day of that unleavened feast, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was a, what they called a high Sabbath day. Even though it didn't fall on Saturday, that first day of that celebration was a Sabbath for Israel. And the Bible says you are to do no servile work or no work on that day. Okay? So that was the second feast, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. The third feast was held the day, uh, I'm sorry, on the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. In other words, You have the Passover, then the next Sabbath that came the day after that, which would be Sunday in our calendar, that began the Feast of First Fruits. And this was something that the the, the children of Israel were to celebrate every year. Now, what would happen in the Feast of First Fruits is that God told them you're to go out into your fields, and the first grain that was ripened was was barley. And so they would gather a sampling of the barley crop, and they would bring it in and bind these, uh, these strands of barley together with a cord, and they would bring that to the priest as an offering. Okay? The priest would take that, and he would do what was called a wave offering before the Lord. He would wave this barley over the altar. And that was the Feast of first fruits. Now, the first fruits demonstrates the quality of the crop. 
What the farmers would do in olden times is they would go at this time of the year as the barley was beginning to ripen and they would gather a little bit of it. And then they would examine it and evaluate the quality of the crop for that year by that sampling. That was called the first fruits, the very first pickings of the fruit or of the grain. And so it was the first fruits. And God said, you're to do this. You're to gather this grain, but you are to present it to the Lord as an offering bound up with a cord. Now, let me put that in perspective so far, okay? There's pictures that God has given us in all of these things. As I said, first we have the the day of Passover. It was on Passover that Jesus Christ was crucified as the final perfect sacrificial lamb. The next day began the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. No sin. Christ's sacrifice conquered sin for us. Then when you get to the Feast of first fruits, if you go to Christ's crucifixion, then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the first day after the Sabbath, after Christ died, was Sunday, the day Christ rose from the dead. He was the first fruits of salvation. God raised him from the dead, obviously to bring him back to life so that we could have eternal life, but it was a picture to us. He is the first fruits of what we will receive as we find life in him. And so in these feasts, God has given Israel a perfect picture of the redemption of Jesus Christ. So we have these three feasts. Passover, the unleavened bread, and then the feast of first fruits. Now, there's another feast that God talks about in Leviticus 23. This is called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And if you read in Leviticus 23, it says they were to celebrate this after seven Passovers had gone by, after the, pa- I'm sorry, seven Sabbaths had gone by after the Passover, and then the next day, Sunday for us again. And that day would be 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And it was called Pentecost. Okay? So what we're talking about in Acts chapter 2, when it says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, was this feast exactly 50 days after the feast of first fruits? And it's all shown in Jesus Christ. He arose from the grave on the day of first fruits, the first day of that celebration. Fifty days after that, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was given and the church was born. So God created this picture back in the Old Testament in the feasts of Israel. He knew exactly what he was doing. So when we read about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it's not just, well, this day just happened, and so we call it Pentecost because that's when the Holy Spirit came. No, God ordained this way back in the Old Testament. It's been part of his plan since the beginning of creation, and it was fulfilled. That's why it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come. In other words, when God's timetable was exactly right for this to happen, the Holy Spirit was given. So Pentecost is the fulfillment of God's plan for the Holy Spirit to come and the church to be born. That's what we read in Acts chapter 2 here in the first verse. So when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The disciples were obeying what Jesus had told them. Wait here. 
And in fact, many scholars believe they were probably in that upper room where they held the Last Supper because they were all gathered together in a house. We'll see that in verse 2. Now, if you read in Luke chapter 24, the end of Luke in verse 49, it says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. That's the command from Christ for them to wait specifically. And so he had told them to wait, and here we have 120 followers of Christ that had known him personally, that have followed him in his ministry through his death and his resurrection. They've seen him after he came out of the grave, and now they're waiting together. So 120 believers, including the 12 disciples, well, 11 now because Judas Iscariot is gone, but there's 11 there, and 120 people all together are waiting in this house. So... In Luke chapter 24, it also tells us that they were continually in the temple. Now, what that means is that these people didn't stop worshiping. They continued to worship even as they were waiting. Now, there's a great lesson for us because as believers, we're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Okay? But if you read in Paul's epistles, excuse me, uh, Paul says, be steadfast, okay, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that's in the context of looking forward to the coming of Christ. So even though we're waiting, we continue to work, we continue to worship, we continue to fulfill the calling that God has given us as believers. And that's what these people were doing. They continued to worship in the temple. When they weren't in the temple, they were together in one house. And that's where they were this day. In verse 2, He goes on, he says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as if a a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. I love how it begins with the word suddenly. Okay? Suddenly. How is Jesus going to take the church from the earth? Suddenly. He's going to come as a thief in the night. It's going to be just in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll be gone. And that's how the church was started, suddenly. Now, these people did not anticipate this as far as that moment or even that day necessarily. And it says they were sitting. That means they were just kind of, I don't know, relaxing, talking, fellowshipping. I have no idea what they were doing, but it says they were sitting. Some people said, well, maybe they were there praying, except that in Scripture, whenever you have someone praying, the posture is either standing praying or kneeling praying. They could have been praying, but that's not given to us. It says they were sitting in the house. So they weren't expecting this at this moment. Suddenly it came. And it says a sound from, uh, from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Now, this was not a specific wind literally. It was the sound of a wind. So it's not as if a gush of air came into the house and blew everything around. But it sounded like a mighty wind came into the house. That's what the Bible says. The sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. So it's a sound, not the actual wind. And it's from where? Heaven. See, whenever you have something that's supernatural that occurs, you have to understand where it comes from. If you go back in the Old Testament, when Moses was standing before Pharaoh, and he did these miracles in front of Pharaoh, and then his... Pharaoh's wise men or his seers tried to duplicate those things. We can't underestimate the power of Satan. 
Satan counterfeits many of God's miracles. They're not miracles in a sense, but they do come from a supernatural power, which Satan has. He is in the spirit world. He has power, not even close to what God has, but he tries to duplicate what God performs to sway people and to get them away from the truth. Okay? So we have to understand this comes from heaven. This is from God. The Bible tells us that when it says it came from heaven. And then it says it's the sound of a rushing, rushing mighty wind. Now, many times in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a wind. In John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says in verse 8, The wind goeth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He's using the wind as an analogy. He says, you see the effect of the wind, but you can't see it. So the wind is compared, in a sense, to the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus, when he had said this, he breathed on them, talking about his disciples, and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. He was giving them a symbol of what was going to happen to them. And he showed them with his breath. God is going to breathe on you from on high, and the Holy Spirit will come into you. So the Holy Spirit is referenced many times as a wind. But this was not an ordinary wind that we're talking about, or a breath of air. The Greek word for air or breath is pneuma. We get our word pneumonia from that, that, uh, that uh, root. Okay, But this is not that word pneuma in the Greek. This is another word, noes. Okay, it means a blast of wind. It's as if somebody blows real hard, not just normal breathing. So this is a, a, an extraordinary event where this sound of a rushing wind comes and fills the house. It says it filled the house where they were. So these 120 followers that are of Jesus are sitting in this house. This sound comes as if a wind has filled the house. And then right after that, in verse 3, it says, There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. So first of all, this sound like a mighty wind fills the entire house. But then individually, each of the the believers there have this little symbol that looks like fire. It's not actual fire. It says, like as of fire, appear above their head. So God is giving them a physical indication of a spiritual event. They don't see the Holy Spirit. They don't see necessarily a physical change in any of them other than this little appearance of what looks like a flame on top of their head. They heard the wind, but God had just poured out his spirit onto the earth and into these people who were waiting. Now at this point, all 120 people in that house, had received the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized by the Spirit of God. That is the event that we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So when we have these physical representations of the Spirit's invisible dwelling of the believer there, it was a picture by God to signify to these people that God had fulfilled the promise that Jesus gave them. The Holy Spirit had come. They had tongues of fire. They heard this wind. Okay, so as they looked at each other, they saw this and they realized this is it. This is the fulfillment of Jesus promise. 
And Jesus had said, wait, because the Holy Spirit's coming, but not many days hence. This is 10 days after Jesus went to heaven, 50 days after he resurrected from the grave. And it was a visible symbol, these tongues and the wind, of a spiritual event. Now, remember last week, we talked about baptism, literal baptism in water, being a physical symbol of a spiritual event. We have given our lives to Jesus. We have died to ourselves. We have been risen with him in his life, and that's what baptism pictures. And here, God gives them a physical symbol of the indwelling or the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on them. In verse 4, it goes on, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is after the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, it happens all in one event. But there's a point here that we need to make sure we understand. The filling of the Holy Spirit is different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The filling of the Holy Spirit is different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it it happened right here on the day of Pentecost. The filling of the Holy Spirit was not a one-time event. For us, being baptized in the Spirit or by the Spirit is a one-time event at salvation. When the Holy Spirit comes into us to indwell us, being filled with the Spirit is a whole other thing. Okay? And so we have to answer this question of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how does it differ from the filling of the Spirit? First of all, you have to understand this. And I want you to understand this because this this phrase is used so often, especially by the charismatic community. The baptism of the Spirit, that phrase, baptism of the Spirit, never appears in Scripture. Okay, Whenever you see something similar to that, it's either baptism in the Spirit Baptism with the Spirit or baptism by the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit never appears in Scripture. So we, can, he, we use that phrase, but we use it loosely because that's not a biblical term. Okay? But what does it mean? Baptism with the Spirit or baptism in the Spirit is when the Holy Ghost comes upon believers and indwells them. That's what happened the day of Pentecost. God poured his spirit out literally from heaven to earth, and he came and indwelt the believers that were there in that house. That was the baptism of the spirit, or in the spirit. We just read about that in Acts chapter 2. And this was an extraordinary event, because up to this point, the Holy Spirit had not been given people to people to indwell them. Now, if you look back through scripture, even into the Old Testament, it talks about people being filled with the spirit or being moved by the Spirit. It's not the same as being indwelt by the Spirit, which is what baptism of the Spirit or in the Spirit accomplishes. Okay? So the, the prophet Joel, when he prophesied that the Spirit of God would be poured out and the young men and the young women would prophesy and the old men would dream dreams and have visions. Okay? He's talking about this event, as we saw last week. Peter got up right after Pentecost, and he told the people who were watching all of this, as the people spoke in tongues, he said, you just seen the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. We were baptized with the Spirit of God, and now we are filled with the Spirit, and we are proclaiming the good works of God. And so he preached. But I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to really understand this, because 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul 
defines this and describes it for us so that we understand what this phrase, being baptized in or by God's Spirit, means. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. And Paul says this, talking, now remember the context here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14 are in the context of spiritual gifts. And in the context of spiritual gifts, Paul is talking about how all believers are part of one body. Okay? That's the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So in verse 12 he says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now, there's two phrases in verse 13 that I want to look at. He says, for by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Okay? That is the baptism in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit that we are, are uh, studying here. When we are baptized by God's Spirit, we are brought into, made a part of the body of Christ. Okay? That is what salvation is. Salvation is, again, re, uh, being regenerated in the life of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit Bapt, uh, is, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into that body. It is the Holy Spirit that puts us and makes us part of that body. Now, what is a sign of that, you know, in the context of these verses? Well, Paul elaborates on, as part of the body, as a member of that body, you'll have spiritual gifts that you will use to, to edify each other. So Paul's talking about the Spirit bringing us together into one body. And so when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. That's that baptism. And in doing so, he incorporates us or infuses us into the body of Christ to become one with every other believer. That's what the baptism in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit accomplishes. It makes us part of the body of Christ. Paul says that very clearly here in verse 13. We are, by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. We're immersed into the body of Christ. You could use that word there. And then at the end of the verse, he says, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, a couple commentators that I studied said, well, this is talking about communion. As we drink the cup, we drink, you know, with the the blessing or with the presence of the spirit of God. If you look at the Greek word for drink here, actually it's the word that's used in regular Greek for watering plants, okay? And so that's the picture, I believe, that Paul's giving us here, that as we drink into one spirit, it's the spirit that gives us the sustenance and the strength that we need to grow and to flourish. And that fits the context. We're all one body. We all get our sustenance and our strength and our enablement from the same spirit. And it's that spirit that has made us part of this body. So Paul, very clearly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, tells us what the baptism in the spirit or by the spirit is. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling us, making us part of the body of Christ. And then he, in his strength, sustains us. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Paul elaborates, he says, For in him, talking about Christ, 
For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. We are made perfect in Christ. Because that's where the Holy Spirit has brought us, has infused us or immersed us. We are immersed into Christ. He said, which is the head and principal, head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, that verse 11 in, in Colossians chapter 2 talks about baptism, the, the ordinance of baptism. It says, we're circumcised, made without hands, the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. Isn't that the picture we create in baptism? And it says, by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, we are stripped of our flesh to be made new and clean in Christ. That's the picture. And so Colossians chapter 2 says, we're complete in Christ. That's where the Holy Spirit puts us as he indwells us. So physical baptism, as shown in Colossians 2, becomes the picture of spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So literally, we're given new life as the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We are instilled, infused, or immersed into Christ's life. Now, here's something I just want to add. We all probably are familiar with John 3.16. The end of John 3.16, it says, Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have, what's the word? Everlasting life, okay? Or eternal life. Does that mean that individually we now get to live forever? God just pours eternal life into us and now we're immortal. No, what it means is that through faith we are redeemed God sends his spirit to indwell us, and the Holy Spirit then gives us life in Christ. The only way we can have eternal life is if we're living in Christ because he is the only one that is eternal. We can't have eternal life by ourselves. It's only in Christ, and that's what he says in Colossians chapter 2. You are complete in him. You have everything you need, not just for this earth and this ministry, but for the life to come. Now, what happens to all those who are not in Christ? They suffer an eternal death because they are apart from Christ. So eternal life is only found in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, as we're baptized by the Spirit, we are given the eternal life of Christ because we live in him. Okay? Now, one thing I want to point out, this whole, the Holy Spirit... Is not the one that baptizes us. Christ does that. We read that in Matthew chapter 3 when John the Baptist said, Though another will come who is greater than I, and I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Okay? The Holy Spirit is the agent of baptism, Christ is the baptizer. So Christ baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Okay, The Holy Spirit does not do the baptizing. God in Christ has poured out his spirit on us. Who was it? Or Christ said to the believers, or to the disciples, I'm sorry. He said, I will send my spirit. Right? So Christ is the one that's doing the baptism. So this, this can kind of get confusing, but think about this. Okay? The Holy Spirit is what we are baptized with as we are immersed in the body of Christ, 
And Christ is the one who does the baptizing. John, chapter, or John the Baptist said that in Matthew chapter 3. Now, I want to go to, to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to read this statement that John made about Jesus. He said, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. At this point, I just want to clear up one misconception that many people have. What is this baptism with fire? I mentioned that at the beginning, okay? What is this baptism with fire? Many people in the charismatic movement want us to believe that this baptism with fire is synonymous with the Pentecost event where flames of fire appeared on the heads of the believers. First of all, it wasn't real fire. It looked like fire. That's all that Acts chapter 2 tells us. It looked like fire. It wasn't real fire. That's not what the baptism of fire is when John the Baptist says that in Matthew chapter 3. So, first of all, there was no real fire at Pentecost. Second of all, John the Baptist actually explains right after he says it what he means when he says Christ will come and will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. If you look at the context in Matthew chapter 3... John the Baptist is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are unrepentant in their sins, and therefore he refuses to baptize them. And he says, I'm baptizing with water for repentance, but someone is coming, Jesus Christ the Messiah is coming, he's going to baptize all of us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he goes on in verse 12, and he says, talking about Christ, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He alludes to the same analogy that that Jesus himself uses when he talks about the parable of the wheat and tares, that the wheat are the true believers, those who truly repent. The tares are people who look religious, who look like they're doing the right thing, but in the end, God is going to separate them out, and the wheat will be gathered together and taken to heaven. The tares will be taken and burned. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. He's talking to the Sanhedrin, saying, those who receive Christ truly in repentance will, be poured, will have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. Those who don't repent will be immersed in a lake of fire. And that's exactly what Jesus taught. So when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, John explains it right here. The Holy Spirit is given to those people who believe, and those people who don't believe will be immersed in eternal suffering in a lake of fire. That's the baptism of fire. Now, if you hear anything else that anybody says, and they try to redefine this baptism of fire... John made it real clear for us. It's not Pentecost. It's at the end of time when God judges all men, and those who are truly his will be gathered together, and all others will be put in the lake of fire for eternity. All right? So that's the baptism of fire. There, I defined that one in about three minutes. That one was easy. Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says we're baptized by the Spirit. How could it be the Spirit baptizing us, but Christ baptizing us. How does that all work together? Okay? Let me give you a passage in Romans chapter 8 that will either help you or confuse you. Hopefully, it'll fill in the holes and give you some understanding in this. Okay? And if you turn to Romans chapter 8, because I want you to see this passage. This is Paul giving us some instruction about uh, the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 8. 
Romans chapter 8, we're going to read 8 through 11. Okay, and this is Paul talking. He says in verse 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, that's a given. I think we pretty much understand that. If we try to please God in our flesh, we can't do it. He goes on in verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh. Remember we talked about the circumcision of Jesus Christ? Here it is, okay? But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. There's that indwelling of the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit. We are in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. So here we see it's the Spirit of God that dwells in us, right? Okay, I want you to understand that because when we start reading the next couple verses, you're going to go, what? Wait a minute, okay? So he says specifically, the Spirit of God dwells in us in verse 9. Then he goes on, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now wait a minute, I just thought he said Spirit of God dwells in us, but we're supposed to have the Spirit of Christ? So is it the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God that dwells in us? Look at the next verse. Verse 10, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Wait a minute. So is it the Spirit of Christ or is it actually Christ? And he goes on. Uh, verse 11. I'm, I'm sorry, where am I? Middle of verse 10. But it, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now this verse just tells us that Christ dwells in us and the Spirit is life. But didn't Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life? So is it the Holy Spirit or is it Christ? Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, now we're talking about the Spirit of God again. So he goes right back to the beginning. So which is it? Is it the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or actually Christ that dwells in us? Well, in Romans chapter 8, if you got confused, the answer is yes. Okay? Yes. Let me take you back to Genesis. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 1, when God was creating man, do you remember the phrase that he used in Genesis 1.26? God speaking as he creates man says, let us create man in our image and in our likeness. We can't forget the Trinity. And this is why the Trinity is so important. Okay? Who created the world? Here's your quiz for today. Who created the world? Which one? Which part of the Trinity? All of them. All of them were involved in the creation of, of, of the, the uh, world, okay? In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, this is talking about Christ. It says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him, Christ, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before, th- him, uh, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That passage in Colossians 1 tells us Jesus Christ created the world. What does Genesis chapter 1 tell us? God created the heavens and the earth. So who did it? God. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in that. In Romans chapter 8, what we see is all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the indwelling, in the enabling, and in the empowering of you as a believer. Now, it's specifically the spirit that dwells in us, but it's the spirit of who? Of God, but also the spirit of Christ, because it's all the same. 
Now, I can't explain it beyond this because now you're asking me to explain the Trinity. How can we have three people that exist in one being? And they're all the same, and yet there's different roles and functions. And Okay? All right? Now, that's as far as my theology will take me. You won't find anything in Scripture that explains it any better than that. So here's what we understand. Christ baptizes us with his spirit, which is the spirit of God. So all three persons are represented in us. We are made in God's image. We have the spirit of Christ in us. That's why he told the disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He wasn't there physically, but he was there in spirit through the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ is the same spirit. So the thing that we need to know, and we don't have to get technical about it, who indwells us? The spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. Christ is in me, right? We are complete in him. So if you want to put it in semantics, we are baptized by Christ with the spirit who immerses us into the body of Christ to unify us with all believers. That is the definition of the baptism in the spirit. Okay, In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, There's one body, there's one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now in those verses, Paul gives us all of the Godhead there. He represents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says one body, one spirit, one hope. Those are linked together. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who puts us into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is also the one who is our guarantee of the promise that God is going to fully redeem us and sanctify and perfect us when we leave this earth. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that. In whom ye also trusted, talking about Christ, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So practically, here's what it looks like. As an unsafe person, we are separated from God. We have none of his existence in us. As we repent, as we give up our lives, submit to the authority of God and his truth, we come to him and claim Christ as our Savior, counting on his sacrifice to pay for our sins. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit is poured into us or comes into us to indwell. Okay? We then are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, when Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, we're not going to get to it this week. We're going to have to take next week to talk about being filled with the Spirit. Okay? But we are, have the Spirit indwelled in us. Now, the power is there. And Ephesians tells us everything that is available in Christ is available to us because we are part of his body because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We still have a sinful body. We're not free from that yet. That's coming. Christ has promised that's coming. In fact, when he ascended to heaven, 
or when he, I'm sorry, when he came up out of the grave, actually, he had a perfect body. Now, people ask, are we going to get to eat in heaven? I believe yes, because Jesus had a perfected, glorified body on this earth after he came out of the grave, and he sat and ate with his disciples a couple different times. So in our perfected, glorified, no-sin body, yeah, we're going to eat in heaven. I mean, obviously, just the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's going to be great food like you've never had before. Okay, it make, it's going to make some of the buffets around here taste like garbage, I'm sure. But we will get that glorified body and the eternal life that comes with it when we get to heaven. But until then, the Holy Spirit in us is that seal of the promise of getting that someday. So that's where our confidence is. We can be absolutely sure that God will send his son to come back for us, that we will come out of this earthly body, we will be given a perfect body, and we will be glorified and perfect in heaven forever. And we know that because the Holy Spirit's here right now in us, guaranteeing that promise is going to happen. That's what Paul tells us. Okay? I'm going to have to stop there because I've got like 62 more pages of notes. I'm not going to be able to do. No, not really. Okay. But I, I don't want to just uh, real quick go over the filling of the Spirit because that's important. I want us to understand the difference. But I hope you get a better picture and a better understanding of what the baptism of the, in the Spirit or with the Spirit of God is now. Uh, and there's many people who confuse that or will con- uh, misconstrue that to mean something else. Okay. We just saw from Scripture what it is for us and what it means for us. All right, we're going to stop there. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed.